Isaiah chapter number 24, verse number 1, the Bible says this, Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken this word. Now immediately when you come to Isaiah chapter 24, the Lord comes right out the gate with both barrels and makes a bold declaration regarding a coming day of judgment. Now, the title for this portion of the book of Isaiah, chapter 24, down to verse number, or chapter 35, is prophecies of the coming judgments. So we've talked about prophecies to the conscience of Israel. We've, we've, uh, talked about prophecies of the conquering of the Gentiles. But these passages deal with prophecies of the coming judgment of God upon this world. Now, as has been the case and, and is often the case in Old Testament prophecy, uh, in the book of Isaiah, you'll find this beautiful, intricate blending of prophecies regarding their present day, prophecies regarding the soon-to-pass future, and prophecies, some of which reach way off into the future, even to times that are still future from us where we stand right now. Now, one of the important truths for you to understand before we even get into the teaching is a basic flyover timeline of God's prophetic calendar. Now, the next thing to happen on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. The Bible describes it as imminent. We don't know when it's going to happen. Lord's going to return. He's going to catch away his bride, the church, unto himself. I'm looking forward to the day when he comes back for the church. Uh, This will begin a period of time that the Bible describes uh, as the tribulation period, uh, the time of Jacob's sorrow. And the Bible describes a seven-year period of time in which God is going to deal directly with Israel as a people, and God is going to sort of close accounts on this world system. This period of time could be further divided in half, three and a half and three and a half years. The first three and a half years are going to be a time of relative peace for Israel as a nation. They're going to enter into a accord with the Antichrist, and that will provide them just a, a, a period of respite, a period of peace, so, uh, seemingly so, for those first three and a half years. In the middle uh, of that seven-year tribulation period, after three and a half years, the Antichrist will break that covenant with the uh, children of Israel, and he will begin fierce, intense persecutions against Israel as a nation. At the close of that second three and a half years, the Lord will return in power and in glory, snatching away from this world system uh, his uh, precious covenant people and setting them in a right condition in the land. He'll judge the nations, he'll set up an earthly throne in Jerusalem, and he'll reign for a thousand years. Now, understanding that basic flyover timeline will help you as you study the book of Isaiah, and particularly these chapters. Because Isaiah will leap from the future to the present, he will leap, I mean, millennia in in, in one breath, And it'll help you to understand a little bit of what's taking place. It'll also help you because there are times that Isaiah uh, is giving a prophecy that has what we would call a dual fulfillment, meaning there is a present partial fulfillment, and then there is a future fulfillment to come. If we were to divide these chapters uh, that we're going to look at tonight, we could divide them into four sections. 
verse uh, number chapter, excuse me, number 24 down to chapter uh, uh, 33 presents to us the world to come. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Chapter 24 down to chapter number 27 presents to us the world to come. Chapters 28 to 33 presents to us the woes to come. God, God begins to pronounce woes again upon Israel particularly and then by extension some Gentile nations. Chapter number 34 presents the war to come, describes for us the scene of Armageddon. And chapter number 35 describes the wonders to come during the millennial kingdom. Now thinking about this uh, phrase, the world to come, chapter number 24 down to chapter number 27 could be further divided into two sections. In chapter 24 we have a picture of a scene of reckoning. Chapters 25 through 27 present the song of the remnant of Israel, the people who faithful to God, God will preserve even through that day of judgment. So what we've read in these introductory verses deals with this scene of reckoning. And they are likewise a picture of when God will judge the earth on the day of Armageddon, when he will destroy the nations of this world that have set themselves against him and bring to heal this world system. We see three things uh, predominantly in the opening verses here. Verses 1 and 3 describe for us the earth's defeat. Listen to it again. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. Verse number 3 says, The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken this word. Never before in human history could this have been said to have come to pass. This has to be future still. And it's in perfect keeping with the description of that cataclysmic scene of the day of Armageddon described in the book of Joel, described in the book of Revelation, and described in many of the Old Testament prophets. There's coming a day the Lord is going to defeat this world system the powers that exist in this world, and the grip that they hold on this world. Verses 4 through 6 describe the earth's devouring. It says, The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. All the proud-hearted people that believe they can defy God, God's going to one day cast them down. Why is that? Because verse 5, the earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. I'll tell you, it's a serious thing to mess with God's word. Verse number 6 says, Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Now, what does the prophet mean when he says the curse? Well, he's describing the curse of, of uh, sin upon humanity as a scourge. The Bible describes how that in the Old Testament, the law being given would pronounce a curse upon those that walk contrarywise to it. Well, humanity having cast off not just uh, God's law in the Old Testament, but God's love in the New Testament, uh, the earth is going to be devoured by the consequences of that rebellion. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, it says, and few men left. You know, the Bible describes how as a result of the day of Armageddon that there would be only a sixth left of the population of the world. So devastating will that scene of carnage be. So he describes the earth's devouring. Then verses 10 through 12, he describes the earth's desolation. He says the city of confusion 
is broken down. Every house is shut up that no man may come in. Commentators probably could argue this back and forth, whether this is a figurative title for Jerusalem as a city, but I don't believe so. I believe what it's doing is laying it in juxtaposition to the control that the world leaders think they have. They think they have cities of enlightenment, cities of wisdom, cities of instruction and education, but on that day they'll be found to be cities of confusion. It says, verse number 11, there is a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In the city is left desolation and the gate is smitten with destruction. In other words, it's a time when all that this world thought they had under control and thought that they had the mastery of is turned upside down. Now, uh, verse number 13 down to verse 18 provide what we're going to call the first of two parenthetical statements. Isaiah is going to pick back up this strain, this description he's been been giving us in verse 19. But there's two thoughts that he gives us in between those. Verse number 13, he begins to describe the people of the world's confession of God as the Lord. It says in verse 13, when thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree and as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. In other words, God's going to shake it and some of what is ready to fall will fall. Uh, Some fruit will be born. And verse 14 says of that group of people, they shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. Isaiah sees this image of people who have survived that day of judgment, turning their hearts to the Lord. How that God through this will break the back of this world and break the will of rebellious and stout-hearted men. And he describes how that God's going to bring good out of that. But in verses 16 through 18, we find out how it affected Isaiah. He could see some good and some glory through this process. But it only grieved him to think of how many would be lost on that day. Verse 16, he says, From the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous. But I said, My leanness, my leanness, woe unto me. He's talking about a leanness of spirit and of soul. He's talking about a grief that he feels. He says, The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Fire and the pit and the snare upon thee, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall come to pass that he who fleeth from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he that cometh up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare for the windows from on high are open and the foundations of the earth do shake. Isaiah, as much as he could rejoice in the fact that God would set things aright in this world, was nonetheless grieved at the, at the toll that would have to be paid in human life. The Bible tells us the Old Testament, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. It says the day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Man, I'm glad. Hey, listen, it rejoices my heart to know that I'm not appointed under wrath. But it grieves my heart to know that this world is going to have to go through so much pain, death, and sorrow. So this comprises this first little parenthetical section here in chapter number 24. And Isaiah picks back up this theme of describing this day in verse number 19. He describes the earth's dissolution. He says the earth is utterly broken down. Sort of feels like that right now, doesn't it? The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. Now, let me pause here and say this. 
It would be tempting to believe that Isaiah is describing the day when the Lord will destroy this world uh, in fire. The Bible describes it. I believe it takes place at the end of the millennial kingdom. Uh, some people would say he renovates this world by fire. Others would say he destroys this world by fire. I'm probably not interested in arguing until we get to heaven and can have an answer to that. But uh, Peter describes it as a time when the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Uh, and it would be tempting in hearing this language. He says it's clean, dissolved, it's moved exceedingly to believe he's talking about that day, I don't believe so because of some of what he describes afterwards. He says in verse 20, The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage, and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. Now, of course, the Lord, particularly if we believe he's going to renovate this world by fire as opposed to destroying it, uh, we couldn't say that it won't rise again. It would still be there. Uh, but irrespective of what your opinion about that particular application is, I believe the application could be made that this world system is going to fall to pieces. And I believe really that's what Isaiah has in mind. Because he describes it as broken down. He says clean dissolved. In other words, he's saying this world's governments and, 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 and powers are completely dissolved. It's moved exceedingly. It reels to and fro like a drunkard and removed like a cottage. He's describing how that this world system that thought it was in control, that thought it had God whipped, is going to fall to pieces. And then verses 21 through 23 describes the earth's dethroning. He says, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. Most commentators believe it's describing those evil and sinister powers that move within many of the circles and, and machines of power in this world, talking about evil beings and evil spirits that so often pull levers in positions of high government. Some of them are described in Daniel chapter number 10 as warring and contending there at the uh, prince of Persia's court. And In other words, saying that the, the power and the power behind the power are all going to be thrown down. He says they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison and after many days shall they be visited. This phrase alone is enough to convince me that it's not talking about the day when the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Or rather it's talking about the millennial kingdom. It's talking about uh, the overthrowing of the world system at the end of the tribulation period and saying that these individuals uh, will be imprisoned. They'll be punished afterwards. Verse 23, Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. So we find here in chapter 24 a scene of reckoning. When we come to chapter 25 through 27, we have a song of God's remnant in that day. Isaiah takes his attention away from the carnage and looks towards the praise and rejoicing of those that through the tribulation period had trust on the Lord and survived that period of time because God had preserved them. One of the key truths about the tribulation period is that though most of Israel will not believe, there will be a faithful remnant that will believe. This, by the way, has been a theme all through the Old Testament, all ever since God called Abraham out of pagan darkness, is that though oftentimes much and most and almost all of the nation would turn away from him, he would always preserve a faithful group of people that believed on the Lord, that knew God, that could carry the line of witness to the next generation. And so likewise it will be during the tribulation period. 
And we have in these chapters sort of the, the praise, the rejoicing of those that by trusting in the Lord God had been delivered from the destruction around them. Chapter 25 presents to us their praise, their rejoicing in the Lord. Verse number one, they're praising God for his sovereignty. It says, O Lord, thou art my God. I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. In other words, they will recognize that he's always been right. (laughs) One of the things I'm looking forward to is this world having to acknowledge that he's always been right. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And here we have their rejoicing that though much of the nation, most of the nation had turned from him, that they were vindicated, proven to be right in trusting in the Lord, and they were praising him for the fact that though it looked bleak and dark at times, God had kept his Word. Verse number four, they praise him for his safety. He says, for thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. There might not be a more beautiful Old Testament verse. God is all these things to and for his people. And you have even that hint at the oppression they will experience during the tribulation in that last phrase when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. They had chosen not to take the mark of the beast, not to check into this world system. They will choose to trust in their God and believe in him and he will protect them from the affliction around them. His safety they are praising him for. Verses 7 and 8, he praises, they praise God for his victory. Uh, I love this verse. And he will destroy in this mountain, talking about uh, Mount Zion, uh, and not just there, but over all the earth as well. He will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. Now you say, well, preacher, what's he talking about there? Well, you'll remember this verse, or at least a verse very similar to it from the New Testament, because it says he will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. It's describing not only the destruction of the Antichrist, not only maybe even in a local sense the destruction of the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but it's talking about the destruction of that last enemy that is to be destroyed, which is death. How that when he delivers them, he won't deliver them from one foe just to deliver them up to another foe, but he will deliver the foe that's above all foes, the foe that haunts all mankind, the foe that is cast like a veil over all nations, death himself. And of course, uh, Paul quotes this verse in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking about the resurrection. Verse number 9, he, they praise the Lord for his mercy. It says, and it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You remember what the theme of this book is, don't you? God is my salvation. He's been trying to teach his people through various enemies and foes and and, and crises gathering around them that they are to turn not to other earthly alliances, certainly not to their own strength, but to him. And here we have the remnant singing the song that God's been trying to teach his people lo, these many long years. When that day comes, they'll finally see that salvation is in him and him alone. 
I'll t- I, let me just say this. I like their attitude about it too. <laughs> they said, and think about it. They said, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. They said, nobody's going to take our joy away. Nobody's going to make us miserable. Hey, we've got the Lord. He's watched over us. He's protected us. And whether it upsets you or anybody else, we're going to rejoice in his salvation. I've taken a lot saying the attitude here of late. I'm not going to let anybody steal my joy, man. I'm saved by the grace of God. It may upset them. It may bother them. It may make them nervous. But I'm just going to go ahead and rejoice because I have the Lord in my life. Chapter 25, we see their song of their praise. Chapter 26, uh, particularly verses 1 through 19, we find them singing a song for their peace. Israel has rarely known peace in her long history. But one of these days there will be peace. Uh, the Bible commands us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem in the book of Psalms. But you know, Jerusalem ain't going to know peace until they put the Prince of Peace on the throne. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, what we're praying for is the coming of the Lord. Because He's the only one that's going to give true peace, lasting peace, in the land of Israel and in the city of Jerusalem. Well, this remnant will have lived to have seen that day of peace. They describe Israel and Jerusalem in that day, and they describe the peace That they enjoy. They say in that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Uh, Now we know that the land of uh, Israel in the city of Jerusalem. uh, They'll still have walls. But they won't really need them. (laughs) They'll still have walls. They'll have walls because they have to have a place to put the gates with the foundations and the gates uh, made of a whole pearl, 12 uh, in, in in the city, uh, with three on each wall. But they won't really need gates. Why? Because their God will be enthroned in the midst of them. So they describe this peace that they'll enjoy. And notice what type of peace it is. Number one, it's a personal peace. Verses 3 through 5. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. This is a beautiful promise that I believe is just as true for the New Testament saved believer in this dispensation of grace as it was in this song of the remnant here. But they're describing how that the uh, nation of Israel, having turned to the Lord in righteousness when they see him whom they pierced, and that remnant who had believed in God will become born again when they look on the Messiah and trust in him for their salvation, describes how that they can now enjoy perfect peace because their mind is stayed on him. Verse number four, trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. For he bringeth down them that dwell on high, the lofty city, he layeth it low, he layeth it low even to the ground, he bringeth it to the dust. So we have here in verses three through five that it is a personal peace. They personally, having believed on the Lord, will enjoy In verses 7 through 9, it's revealed that there is a social peace as well. In other words, it won't be unrighteousness and unjustness that prevails, but rather righteousness and justice. Verse 7 says the way of the just is uprightness. Thou most upright dost weigh the path of the just. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. 
Now, they've learned this by patient waiting on the Lord during the tribulation period. They waited on their God and their God delivered them. But it also plots the course for what the millennial kingdom will look like. Because not just Israel, but all the world will enjoy a social peace that it never has enjoyed before. We're living in the time of great social upheaval. We live on the precipice of national war, of civil war, of societal war at every turn. But when Christ reigns in Jerusalem, we'll know peace as a society. Not only will it be a social peace, but there will be a national peace. Verses 12 through 13. In other words, they won't have to worry about enemies around them. It says, Lord, thou wilt ordain peace for us, for thou also hast wrought all our works in us. O Lord, our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. I like verse 15. Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. What do they mean by it when they say removed it? Far unto all the ends of the earth. They're describing the danger, the imperilment, the threat that they have lived constantly within. In other words, they as a nation are going to finally enjoy peace. Listen, no amount of, of early rocket and missile detection uh, systems is going to do it. No amount of military technology is going to produce it. No amount of Gentile alliances is going to produce it. Only when the Lord sits enthroned in Jerusalem will the nation be able to rest truly at Peace. We have some fascinating verses that close out this chapter or the next portion of it, verse 16 down to verse 19. They don't close the chapter. And I want you to notice them. I'll say a word about it and then try to hasten beyond. But it describes a resurrected people. Now, this is a nuance I think a great many people miss. But listen to what the uh, remnant says. Lord, in trouble have they visited thee. Talking about those that lean upon him, that need him. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. Like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pains, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. In other words, they're describing this moment of crisis, this moment of doubt they're experiencing, and how that they're struggling and they've cried out to the Lord and they desire for Him to deliver them. And listen to how the Lord answers. Verse 19, Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Now, time would fail me to describe everything, but at the close of the book of Daniel, there is a resurrection that is described. This, in fact, was the preeminent resurrection that the Jew had in their mind when they thought of a resurrection. They believed in what we would call a general resurrection. And because Daniel says that uh, at the end of the tribulation period that there will be a resurrection, some will awake unto righteousness and some to unrighteousness. And what Daniel's describing uh, is how that uh, God is going to bring about two things at the close of the tribulation period. He's going to resurrect the unsaved dead nations that they might stand at that judgment that's described in the book of Matthew when we talk about the judgment of the goats and the judgment of the sheep. But likewise, God's going to resurrect Israel as a nation. 
And part of what that's going to involve is a resurrection of Old Testament saints that had believed on him. Uh, I've never really heard anybody describe when those Old Testament saints are supposed to be resurrected. And people can say, well, it, you know, it, it happens whenever the church is resurrected. But he's not coming back for Israel when he raptures us out. He's coming back for the church when he raptures the church out. The Bible talks about the dead in Christ shall rise first. But an Old Testament saint didn't believe on Christ. They believed the promises of God and, and the ability of that uh, day of atonement sacrifice to stand for their sin and, and to pardon them. And so just as God throughout this entire dispensation of grace has not dealt with Israel nationally, so likewise he'll not deal with them at the moment of the rapture. But at the close of the tribulation period, he will raise those Old Testament saints that had died with faith in the Lord. And notice the language carefully. Speaking to this remnant, thy dead men shall live together with my dead body. Now, who's the Lord's body? Who's the body of Christ? Well, the church is the body of Christ. Remember that often the tribulation period is spoken of as a whole or singular or holistic event. And though God gives great attention and detail to describing various phases and moments in it, often you'll find the day of the Lord to be a sweeping phrase that encompasses all of that tribulation period from the beginning all the way up to the close of the tribulation and his glorious appearing. And so it wouldn't be appropriate or inappropriate, excuse me, it wouldn't be inappropriate to describe in one breath the rapture of the saints or of the New Testament believers that have died in Christ at the beginning of the tribulation period and the rapture of Old Testament saints being resurrected at the close of the tribulation period. And what he's saying is this, that those that have died in the Lord in the Old Testament, they're not going to be left in that dead state. Uh, their bodies won't. They won't be left as disembodied spirits, but God's going to raise their body as well when he takes up his dealings with Israel again and brings righteousness into the nation. And you say, well, preacher, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with the rest of the chapter? Uh, remember, true peace is going to come when the Lord gives us that glorified body. Remember what the context is here. Back in chapter 24, he's talking about death being, or chapter number 25, death being swallowed up in victory. About how that the last enemy that's to be defeated is death. And then he'll have put all things under his feet. And what he's saying is essentially this. The thing that has allowed Israel's enemies to enslave her through all her long years has been their fear of death. They have been a temporal people. They have been a carnal people. They have been an earthly people. And just as through the, the power of the cross of Calvary, he has delivered those of us that believe on the Lord from fear of bondage and death, so likewise will the uh, nation of Israel partake in that same victory. So chapter 26, they're praising the Lord for his peace. Chapter number 26, the close, the last couple verses, and into chapter 27, they praise the Lord for his protection. Verses 20 through 21, closing out this chapter, we find God's instructions given to this remnant during the tribulation period. He says this, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself as if it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. In other words, God's saying this needs to be your marching orders. Don't run to the Antichrist and make 
uh, peace accords. Don't run to Gentile nations and seek refuge and seek shelter. Instead, close yourself away, trust in the Lord, and He will deliver you. Having practiced this, they were able or will be able to sing this great song of praise one day. They'll be equipped with this very passage from Isaiah when they go through the tribulation period knowing what to do. Now in chapter 27, uh, they're praising him for his protection. The instructions to the remnant closing out chapter 26. Chapter 27 uh, begins by describing the Lord's destruction of the dragon. He said, what do you mean, preacher? Well, look at verse 1. The Bible says, in that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent. And he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Satan has always stood in opposition of Israel as a nation. Satan uh, provoked David to number the people of Israel. He has always hated that God has a covenant people. God is going to overthrow the authority of Satan in this world when he returns in power and in glory. He's going to take him, bind him hand and foot, and cast him into a bottomless pit. They're rejoicing because he's protected them from this dragon. Verses 2 through 6 present the restoration of the vineyard. Now, I don't know if you remember this far back. We've all slept since then. But back in chapter 5 of Isaiah, God tells a story about a vineyard. And it's a parable about Israel, how that he planted Israel like a vine in the wilderness and how he, he, you know, hedged about them and how he got all the rocks out and how he prepared this beautiful place for them to grow. But they didn't bring forth clean grapes or good grapes or tame grapes, but rather they brought forth wild grapes. This parable describes for us Israel's defiance, rebellion and corruption in the eyes of God. But I'm glad he doesn't leave them in that condition. In verse number two, he begins to describe what that vineyard's going to look like on that day when he has set them in righteousness like a diamond set in a ring in the land of Israel. Verse two says, in that day, sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. He says, fury is not in me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. In other words, saying, don't don't set about briars and thorns against my vineyard. I'll cut right through them. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. They're rejoicing that God has not annihilated them and hasn't allowed the nations of the world to destroy them. But just as he promised they would be a vineyard, just as he promised they would be fruitful, he will have kept that promise. Verse 9, he begins to describe the reconciliation of the people. And it's apparent if you study carefully the Old Testament that when God sets Israel back in her land in accordance with his promises, it won't be a some sort of pseudo-political state endorsed by a globalist system. It won't be precariously perched just waiting for some world superpower to knock them out of the land as they are situated today. None of the prophecies that regard God reestablishing the nation could rightfully have said to have taken place in 1948. God's going to do a lot better job than the UN did in 1948. God's going to do a lot better job than the Council of Nations did when he sets them in the land. When he sets them in the land, the Bible says they won't just be there but they'll be righteous. Verse 9, By this therefore shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. He's been describing their affliction. said, By that, by the tribulation, uh, their uh, willfulness will be broken. 
And he says this, this is all the fruit to take away his sin. When he maketh all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, the groves and images shall not stand up. In other words, Israel, when she turns to God in that day, it won't be half-hearted or with half measures hanging on to her idols, but rather they'll cast those idols away. They'll destroy them. Verse 13 describes for us the collection then of the scattered people of Israel back into the land. Verse 13 says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. By the way, this is highly uh, you know, evocative of, uh, of, of how Israel moved in the Old Testament. And that's uh, They'd blow the trumpet. It set them forward in motion. They'd blow the trumpet when battle happened. They'd blow the trumpet at feast time to worship. That's what Paul means. The mid-tribbers miss this. They, the mid-tribbers read when Paul says at the last trump, and they think it's talking about the trumpets in the book of Revelation. The only problem with that is Paul didn't have the book of Revelation. And the people he was writing to didn't have the book of Revelation. And though there are things we don't understand in the Bible when we read them, I'm aware of that. God doesn't give us plain, clear-spoken language set directly in our dispensation and not expect us to understand it. The mid-tribber would say, well, Paul said it, the last trump, and so you get halfway through the tribulation and there's the last trump. Well, that would have surprised Paul because not even John knew about that when Paul wrote that down. Now, when Paul talks about the trumpets, he's talking about Israel's custom under the law of blowing the trumpet to go forth to battle or to come in to worship or to move forward and travel whenever they were moving the tabernacle. And likewise, there'll be a trumpet blown on this day to do what? To gather them in to worship. That the great trumpet shall be blown and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Here we have the remnant man just getting happy, just enjoying their salvation for how God will have delivered them on that day. So chapters 24 through 27 describe the world to come. But in chapter 28, we have a transitional moment. And Isaiah is going to begin to describe the woes to come. Some of these will apply to Israel's uh, history or uh, their soon future, uh, events that would transpire within a uh, hundred years or so of whenever Isaiah pinned them down. And some of them look far forward into days that are still yet future. We find there are six woes that Isaiah pronounces in these coming chapters. Notice them with me. Look at chapter number 28. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. Now remember, Ephraim is God's name for Israel when she's living in rebellion. Whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one, which as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down to the earth with the hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden under feet, and the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower, and as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he that looketh upon it seeth, while it is yet in his hand, he eateth it up. The first woe that is pronounced is woe to the drunkards. Now, Isaiah is going to call out explicitly the drinking of strong drink. And don't think that the term drunkard here is purely uh, symbolic in nature, because he's going to get very graphic with their sin here in a moment, describing their drunkenness and their uh, wine-bibbing and their uh, partaking in strong drink. It was a sin then, it's a sin now. It was a sin then, it's a sin now. 
It's always been a sin. You say, but preacher, the Bible talks about wine. Yeah, I know it talks about wine. When it talks about alcohol, it uses the term strong drink. And so wine, meaning the uh, blood or fruit of the uh, grapevine, uh, oftentimes, most of the time, it referred to grape juice, unfermented grape juice, just as it did on the night that our Lord gave uh, the Last Supper. Uh, but the Bible describes strong drink and warns against those that not just not just overindulge, but even look upon, e- e- even extend a hand to. Uh, you say, but preacher, moderation, moderation's the world's word. That's not what the Bible advises. The Bible advises to not look upon it when it moveth about in the cup. So the term drunkard is not wholly symbolic. However, their actual physical drunkenness was symbolic of a spiritual drunkenness that they had engaged in. And we find in this passage of Scripture, uh, we find that there are, are, are sort of three things in this chapter that God is going to condemn. First thing he describes is their fading flower. He's describing how that at this moment Israel seemed to be well set, lush, prosperous, and set in safety. But that God through the Assyrians would cast them down. I told you in this uh, prophecy of Isaiah, there's a blending oftentimes of immediate or, or imminent prophecies with things that reach far into the future. And one of the themes you'll find is that in these prophecies, the Assyrian does refer to the Assyrian. But there are times that it reaches beyond the Assyrian and is symbolic of really all world Gentile powers that stand in opposition to God's people. In that day, it was the Assyrians. But all throughout history, it's been all manner of people, and there are times it even looks forward and points to the empire of the Antichrist. Here we find, when he describes their fading flower, he describes four things. One is their destruction, what we just read. They look like they're set in safety now, but they're going to be destroyed. Then we have an amazing verse of Scripture. Verse number 5 says this, In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty under the residue of his people, and for a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment, and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. Here again we have this blending of vision. I believe that he's talking about Ephraim of his day. I believe the destruction he's going to describe will also describe the destruction by the Assyrians. But he's looking beyond that to a day when Israel, having gone through affliction and trial, will at the other side of it turn to the Lord and he will be their glory on that day. When it describes the fading flower, it's describing a crown of foliage or of of flowers that they had about their head, which they would often wear at times of feast or revelry. And he's saying, right now you wear that crown of flowers that's soon to fade away. But one day when I set you in righteousness, you'll wear a real crown and that crown will be me and my favor in your life. He describes the diadem that they one day would wear. Then he's pulled back to the present. He describes Israel's drunkenness. He says, but they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. You say, preacher, it's all just figurative. We'll explain verse 8. He says, for all the tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no place clean. I don't know about you, I think symbology is out the window. I think it does obviously imply a spiritual drunkenness, but he's saying, no, this has led them down that path. Their carnality, their fleshliness, their indulgence in sin. He describes their drunkenness. And then verses 9 through 13, he describes their deafness. 
He says this, whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. In other words, that the older people there in Israel, they had hardened their hearts. They wouldn't listen. But those that uh, did not know the Lord or young children, they would be able to be taught. Then a verse that you've often heard misapplied and misquoted, verse 10, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. I've heard so many preachers say, this is how we ought to study the Bible, man, line upon line, precept upon precept. And while... I essentially agree that we ought to compare Scripture with Scripture, and the Bible is its own best commentary. I find that often people that have no more than a passing acquaintance with that verse are also prone to the very same verse, stammering lips and another tongue. (laughs) This is not a laudable, noble thing that the Lord's saying about Israel. What he's saying is because they won't listen to my truth, I've got to slow down and say it line upon line. He's saying because they've turned their ear away from me, I cannot just speak plainly to them, but I have to treat them like a little child. The only ones that I can teach are those that are willing to humble themselves. And with those, I have to just go slow and go line upon line and precept upon precept. We see this even more, verse 13, but the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Why? That they might learn and grow and be robust and knowledgeable? No, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. So, preacher, why would God do that? Well, because God is not going to leave them without opportunity. But nor is he going to indulge their dullness and their hard-heartedness. So what does he do? He gives them enough light to condemn them. You say, well, preacher, when did that happen? Well, he goes on a little further in this passage of Scripture and describes a, a, a verse that We've often, uh, you know, read in the New Testament where it talks about their ears being heavy. It quotes the book of Isaiah. But before we get there, I want you to notice the next few verses set sort of the time frame of this passage. We find not only their fading flower, but verses 14 through 22 reveal to us that this is describing for us Israel during the tribulation period. Notice verse number 14. It begins to describe Israel's alliance with the Antichrist. It's almost remarkable the similarities between Israel seeking alliance with Assyria and then seeking alliance with Egypt and how once again during the tribulation, Israel's going to seek alliance with this world power, with the Antichrist. And listen to how it's described. Verses 14 and 15, he describes on that day Israel's foolish covenant that they'll make. He says, Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because ye have said we have made a covenant with death, And with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Now you might be tempted to think this only applies to Israel's nearsighted and foolish covenant with Assyria. Certainly, as they heard it that day, it would have stung them deep to know that when they sided with Assyria, they made a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. But it looks beyond that day, and we know that because of the next verse. Because we find not only 
the foolish covenant, but we find a faithful cornerstone that God says he's going to send in response. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. You studied your New Testament. You know that phrasing is all through there referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, that the build, the stone which the builders refused is made the head of the corner. So we see the faithful cornerstone and then we see the failed conspiracy verse number or confederacy verse 17. He says judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. Not just describing Assyria turning on them, but describing the Antichrist one day turning on them. And he says in verse 18, And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by. Remember, when when Israel, when Assyria broke her agreement with Israel, Jerusalem wasn't trodden down. God stopped them at the gates and slew 185,000 Assyrians. This is talking about the day when Jerusalem won't be spared, when the Antichrist will turn on them and will set himself up in the temple of God to be worshipped as God. It says in verse number 19, From the time that it goeth forth, it shall take you, for morning by morning shall it pass over by day and by night, and it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. For the bed is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than that he can wrap himself in it. In other words, he's saying you can stretch that covenant far as you want. It won't give you the coverage. It won't give you the foundation that you need. We see in verse 21 and 22, God's fearsome coming on that day. For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. Now, therefore, be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a consumption even determined upon the whole earth. It wasn't a consumption upon the whole earth in the day that God smote the Assyrians, but there will be on the day that he destroys the Antichrist. So we have in this passage their alliance with the Antichrist. Then finally, verses 23 through 29 present an interesting analogy. We'll rush through it. It says in verse 23, Give ye ear and hear my voice. Hearken and hear my speech. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? The answer is yes. Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? The answer is yes. When he hath made plain the face thereof, in other words, overturn the dirt, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? The answer is yes. In other words, he casts the fitches, he scatters the cumin, he casts the principal wheat, and he puts the appointed barley and rye in their specific places. For his God doth instruct him to discretion. And doth teach him. In other words, he don't plant every crop the same way. He does so deliberately and with discernment and discretion. For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument. They're too delicate to do that with. Neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin. It would crush it. But the fitches are beaten out with a staff and the cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it nor break it with the wheel of his cart nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in work. 
you say, preacher, wonderful. Master class on planting fitches and cumin and bread corn and barley and wheat. What's God saying there? He's saying this. Even a farmer is smart enough to know you don't plant every crop the same way. You deal with them deliberately and distinctly. He says, you know who taught them that? God taught them that. To preacher, why is that a blessing? It reminds me that God knows what he's doing in his planting, in his turning, in his tilling, in his pruning. He's reminding them that though they're going to go through difficult times, God's not foolish in the way that he deals with them. So we find first off, and that was a long one, so you give me a chance here. We find first off, woe to the drunkard. Look with me at verse chapter number 29, the first portion. We have a second woe here. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Now, if that's the first time you've ever read that, you've thought, what in the world does God have a problem with that red-headed mermaid from that Disney movie? But it's not Ariel, it's Ariel. And this is an interesting name for the city of Jerusalem. It means the Lion of God. It's an ancient name. And we know that because he describes them killing sacrifices. And the place where they killed sacrifices and gave them and worshipped at this time in Israel's history was, of course, Jerusalem. We have in this passage, woe to the disingenuous. He says they're sacrificing, they're worshipping, they're adding year to year, they're killing their sacrifices. But he says they're not doing it in sincerity. So here's what he'll do. Notice three things. One, he describes Jerusalem's humiliation. Verse number two, yet I will distress Ariel and there shall be heaviness and sorrow and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about and will lay siege against thee with a mount and I will raise forts against thee and thou shalt be brought down and shalt speak out of the ground and thy speech shall be low out of the dust and thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. He's describing how during the tribulation they will rest in their ceremonial religion, at least until the Antichrist puts an end to it. But remember, God's done closed the window on sacrifices. There remaineth therefore no sacrifice for sin. And though Israel as a nation should and some will turn to God in faith during the tribulation, what God's looking for is not the reinstitution of Levitical worship. He's given us a better way through Jesus Christ, through a new and living way, which he hath consecrated through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. But the Israel nationally will reinstitute Levitical worship. God won't delight in that. He'll despise that. They'll add sacrifices thinking their ceremonialism will somehow protect them. God says, I'll humble you as a result. He describes their humiliation. Verses 5 and 6, he describes their visitation. He says this, Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passeth away. Yea, it shall be at an instant suddenly. Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. All this describing that same uh, flaming fire taking vengeance that's described in Second Thessalonians chapter number 1. Verses 9 through 14 describe the confusion of the land of Israel uh, as far as their counsel and their wisdom is concerned. He says, stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered, and the vision of all is become unto you as words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee, and he saith, I cannot. 
for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Wherefore, the Lord said, Forasmuch as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. In other words, God says this, that he's going to confound and confuse them on that day. So that they'll be given, just like the rest of the world, over to a strong delusion. And they'll not until their will is ultimately broken and the Lord appears in glory turn unto him. By the way, this verse number 13 is quoted and verse 14 is quoted in the New Testament regarding Israel's state at Christ's earthly ministry as well. So we have here woe to the disingenuous. Then beginning in verse 15, we see a woe pronounced to the deceivers. He says this, woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord and their works are in the dark. And they say, who seeth us and who knoweth us? He describes Well, let's read verse 16 as well. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work of him uh, say of him that made him and made it, he made me not. Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding. We have here a picture of the counselors during the tribulation period that will preach a message not of hope and faith in the Lord, but of despair and destruction to the people of Israel. They'll proclaim that there is no hope, that God's not going to save them, that God has abandoned them, and their best bet is to sue for peace with the Antichrist. We have here the what the lying prophets will say in the tribulation. But then notice what the Lord's prophet sees when he looks a little further in this passage. And he describes three things he sees in Israel at the close of the tribulation. I like them. Notice them with me. Verse 17. He says, is it not yet a very little while and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? They said everything was going to be turned upside down. They said it was nothing but darkness. But he says Lebanon will be a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. In other words, it'll be plentiful. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. He sees Israel surviving the tribulation. He sees a faithful remnant coming through to the other side. Not only does he see Israel surviving, look at verse 19. He says, the meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to naught and the scorner is consumed and all that watch for iniquity are cut off that make a man an offender for a word and lay a snare for him that reproveth in the gate and turneth aside the just for a thing of naught. He sees Israel rejoicing. He says, I don't see them weeping. I see them increasing in joy in their Lord in that day. And then verses 22 through 24, he sees Israel believing. He says, therefore, thus saith the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he seeth his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. In other words, they're going to 
preach a message of doom and gloom, but Isaiah says, I see a message of survival and salvation, of redemption and rejoicing. He says, woe to the deceivers. Verse number, chapter number 30 describes another woe, woe to the defiant. And here Isaiah pulls us back into the present day of his day and begins to deal with the people in the land of Israel that were looking to Egypt to save them uh, from the Assyrians. He describes them as being defiant to believe on the Lord. And there are two glimpses in this passage. The first is the rebellion of the nation. Verses 1 and 2, he describes their woeful reliance. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Remember, at this time, Israel was seeking for help on every hand except the Lord's. And now woe is pronounced to them as being rebellious for seeking someone other than him. And by the way, it is rebellion to seek help from someone other than the Lord. We see their woeful reliance. We see their worthless or worthless alliance in verse 3. He says, Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame, and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. He echoes this in verse 7, For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this, their strength is to sit still. I've known Baptists that were that way. Amen. If sitting still was an Olympic sport. Amen. But he says this, they're not going to help you. They're not going to aid you. They're not going to deliver you. He describes Israel's willful ignorance of him in verse number eight. He says, now go write it before them in a table and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get you out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. In other words, they didn't want to hear the truth. They were willfully ignorant and didn't want to turn to God. And then in verses 15 and 16, we see their wicked defiance. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall ye be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. And ye would not. But ye said, no, for we will flee upon horses. Therefore shall ye flee. And we will ride upon the swift. Therefore shall they that pursue you be swift. God says, you won't turn to me, you won't trust in me, so I'll deliver you up to your foes. The first portion of this chapter deals with the rebellion of the nation. The closing portion deals with the restoring of the nation. And here Isaiah leaps forward into the future and describes how that God will one day give deliverance to Israel that they had sought in their Gentile neighbors. Verses 19 through 21, he describes them as being restored in the land. He says, for the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer thee. Though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner anymore. But thine eyes shall see thy teachers and thine ears shall hear a word behind thee saying, this is the way, walk ye in it when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. This, by the way, has still not been fulfilled in the land of Israel today. Still they're under judicial blindness, deceived and not depending on the God of the Bible, but one day they will. Verse 22, Isaiah sees them uh, rejecting their idols. He says, Ye shall defile also the covering of thy graven images of silver and the ornament of thy molten images of gold. Thou shalt cast them away as a menstruous cloth. Thou shalt say unto it, Get thee hence. 
Verse 23, Isaiah sees them reaping the blessings of following the Lord. Then shall he give the rain of thy seed, and that thou shalt sow the ground withal, and bread of the increase of the earth, and it shall be fat and plenteous, and that day shall thy cattle feed in large pastures. Verse 29, he sees them rejoicing in their God. He says, ye shall have a song. <laughs> I like that. Ye shall have a song as in the night when a holy solemnity is kept. And gladness of heart is when one goes with a pipe to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. Now, verses 30 through 33 are interesting. It's obvious he's not talking about a deliverance present in Israel's day because of the language given in verse number 33. But he begins to describe seeing Israel rescued by her Savior. He says, and the Lord shall cause his glorious voice to be heard and shall show the lighting lighting down of his arm with the indignation of his anger and with the flame of a devouring fire with scattering and tempest and hailstones. This doesn't describe the destruction of Assyria, but it does describe the battle of Armageddon. For through the voice of the Lord shall the Assyrian be beaten down, which smote with a rod. And in every place where the grounded staff shall pass, which the Lord shall lay upon him, it shall be with tabrets and harps and in battles of shaking will he fight with it for Tophet is ordained of old yea for the king it is prepared he hath made it deep and large the pile thereof is fire and much wood and the breath of the Lord like a stream of brimstone doth kindle it you've studied the Old Testament much you know that Tophet is a word that is evocative of the idea of hell Tophet was one of the lowest places in the valley of Hinnom and the valley of Hinnom itself a picture of hell. It's reason that uh, there's times the Bible uses the term Gehenna to describe the New Testament. Hell is because it, it, it's the uh, New Testament, the Greek alliteration of the Old Testament uh, phrase, the Valley of Hinnom or the place of Hinnom. And Tophet was the lowest place there. It's describing how when it uses the term Assyrian, symbolically speaking of the Antichrist, God will cast him down and cast him into hell. So here in chapter 30, we have uh, a woe to the defiant. Chapter 31 presents the woe to the dependers. And yes, that is a made up word, the dependers. But it fit the illustration. I think if I ever start a doo-wop band, I'm going to name them the dependers. Amen. And uh, that might, well, anyway. <laughs> uh, chapter number 31 pronounces a woe to those Likewise, again, that we're trusting in Egypt. And it's not a very long chapter. Uh, it, it can be divided into two portions, right? The first three verses describe to us how the Egyptians would disappoint Israel. And then verses 4 through the close of the chapter describes how the Lord would deliver Israel. Verse number one says this, woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots. By the way, that King James Bible word stay, it means to wait on something or to trust in something or to wait for something. So those that wait or stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Verse number three, he goes on to describe it further. He says, now the Egyptians are men and not God and their horses flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall and he that is hoping shall fall down and they shall all fail together. He describes how the Egyptians would disappoint them. In verse one, he describes the faithlessness of their confederacy. They look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. But in verse three, he just describes the foolishness of he says, I don't know why you're trusting in people that can be killed instead of me who can't be killed. <laughs> I don't know why you're trusting in those that are flesh instead of me who who is spirit cannot be killed. 
And then verses 4 through the close of the chapter, he describes how the Lord would deliver them one day. He says, for thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him. He will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. He has in his mind the image of a lion sitting over its prey and a bunch of shepherds come out, wave their sticks and bang them against the ground and try to scare them off and that lion don't even move. What he's sitting on top of belongs to him and nobody can have it but him. He says, that's how I feel about Israel. That's how I feel about Jerusalem. I'm not going to I'm not going to deliver it over. It's my hill as birds flying, he says. So will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem, defending it. Also, he will deliver it and passing over. He will preserve it. We have in verses four and five, the jealousy of the Lord. He said, it's my city. I'm not going to give it away forever and I'm not going to give it over to ungodly men. Verses eight through nine describe for us the victory of the Lord. He says, then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man and the sword, not of a mean man shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword and his young men shall be discomfited. He shall pass over to his stronghold for fear and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign, saith the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and his furnace in Jerusalem. And that's exactly how it happened when the angel of the Lord slew them. Chapter number 22 presents to us the second and final of these parenthetical portions. And here, Isaiah is going to use highly symbolic language to describe God's ultimate plan for Israel as a nation. It divides itself into three portions. The first five verses present to us the description of God's plan for Israel. In the midst of all this, (coughs) excuse me, it's like God gives Isaiah a glimpse of what God's ultimately going to do. And he says in verse 1, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind and as a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. It's describing our Lord, saying what he will be one day for Israel. He says, in the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall not or shall hearken. Everybody with glasses and, and hearing aids said amen. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge. And the tongue of the stammerer shall be ready to speak plainly. The vile person shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful. God says, one day I'm going to do this for Israel. But notice that it won't happen immediately. Because in verses 9 and 10, there is an interruption in God's plan in Israel. He says, rise up, ye women that are at ease. Hear my voice, ye careless daughters. Give ear unto my speech. Many days and years shall ye be troubled, ye careless women. For the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. Tremble, ye women that are at ease, be troubled, ye careless ones. Strip you, make you bare, and gird sackcloth upon your loins. You remember when our Lord was walking to Calvary, and there was a group of women following him and weeping, and he turned and he looked at him and he said, Weep not for me, ye daughters of Jerusalem, but weep for yourselves. He said, If thou hadst known the day of thy visitation, he's saying, If you knew what was really happening, you wouldn't weep for me. You'd weep for you. He's evoking what Isaiah says here in pleading with those women to to uh, weep and to mourn and to repent and to lament for Israel and for this time of disruption 
an interruption in God's plan. Verse 13 and 14, he says this, Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city, because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left, the forts and towers shall be dens forever. A joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks. He's saying there's going to be a disruption, an interruption in this period of time. But it doesn't end there. I'm glad it doesn't end there. Because verse 15 describes the realization of God's plan for Israel. He says, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. He just got through a couple chapters ago talking about how one day God, the millennial kingdom, he'll bring that to pass. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. And the work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings and in quiet resting places. He says there's coming a day and it's going to take a while, he says, but I promise you my word will not fail. Chapter 33, we have the final woe that's given. And it is a woe that is declared actually not to Israel, but to Israel's oppressors. We see a warning to Israel's oppressors in verse 1, and it is a woe to the destroyers. He says, Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. In other words, he says there's some non-closed accounts left open here. You've dealt treacherously against God's people, and you've not yet been dealt treacherously against He says this, when thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. And when thou shalt make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with thee. In other words, saying about the time you're ready to raise the white flag is about the time God's going to show up and exact punishment upon you. We see in this passage a warning to Israel's oppressor. But then beginning in verse 2, we see the waiting of Israel's faithful. More of this language regarding the remnant, the faithful remnant during the tribulation. O Lord, be gracious unto us. We have waited for thee. Be thou their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people fled. At the lifting up of thyself, the nations were scattered. And your spoil shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar. As the running to and fro of locusts shall he run Upon them, the Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness, and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of thy salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. We see in these verses the cry of their faith in verse number two. They're waiting on the Lord. In verses five and six, we see the confidence of their faith. They know, uh, though the enemies are pressing in, that God will deliver them. Verses 10 through 13, we see the warring of Israel's God. God's going to rise up. Boy, I tell you, when I was growing up, the worst thing in the world, if Dad was sitting back resting in the easy chair, if I got in trouble, he'd get up. I knew there was trouble. Amen. One day God's going to get up from his throne, and there's going to be trouble on this world system. Verses 10 through 13 describe it. Now will I rise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. Ye shall conceive chaff, ye shall bring forth stubble, your breath as fire shall devour you. In other words, saying all of your schemes and plans, they won't bring forth fruit. And the people shall be as the burnings of lime, as thorns cut up shall they be burned in the fire. Hear ye that are far off what I have done, and ye that are near acknowledge my might. You see the warring of Israel's God in these verses. And then in the closing verses of this chapter, we see the wonder of Israel's destiny. After God has 
unseated and unthroned this world's powers. What's he going to do and what will it mean for Israel? It'll mean three things. One, it'll mean that they'll see a perfect king. Verse 17, thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. In other words, they're going to see a king in his beauty and the land that they've always desired. You know, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, the Bible talks about how they looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. They looked afar off. The promise was not nigh. It was afar off from them. Well, One day, that which God has promised will be brought nigh to them. Verses 20 through 22, they'll experience a peaceful city. It says, look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation. No more rockets sailing over. No more gunfire, a quiet habitation. A tabernacle shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed. Neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. When it talks about a tabernacle, it's not saying the tabernacle. It's saying a tabernacle, a tent, a dwelling place. And saying that they won't, they won't force people off the land anymore. Verse 21, but there the glorious Lord will be unto us as a place of broad rivers and streams, wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ships pass thereby, no more warships sailing by. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. You know, the Bible said there'd be a lawgiver come from Judah uh, in Genesis chapter 49. Well, one of these days that lawgiver is going to sit on the throne. And it's not just a peaceful city, but verse 24 discloses a pardoned people. I like this. And the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Even in the woes, there's wonders. Even even in the judgment, hey, there's mercy. I'm glad even in wrath, he remembers mercy. Two more chapters. Notice them very quickly and we'll be done tonight. We've talked about the world to come. We've talked about the woes to come. But now verse or chapter 34 in its totality deals with the war to come. And it describes for us the scene of Armageddon. Verses 1 and 2 describe a furious God on that day. He says, Come near, ye nations, to hear and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Verses 3 through 5 describe a fierce destruction. Their slain also shall be cast out and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses and the mountains shall be melted with their blood and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine and as a falling fig from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edomia, another name for Edom, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. Now, as far as countries are concerned, you just about can't get closer to Israel than Edom. And he's saying that all that country around Israel will be like a wasteland. It'll be a field of death in verses 8 through 15. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch and the dust thereof into brimstone and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it. The owl also and the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion, the stones of emptiness. They shall call the no 
nobles thereof to the kingdom, but none shall be there. And all her princes shall be nothing. And thorns shall come up in her palaces, nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof. And it shall be an habitation of dragons and a court for owls. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island. And the satyr shall cry to his fellow. The screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. There shall the great owl make her nest and lay and hatch and gather under her shadow. There shall the vultures also be gathered, every one with her mate. What he's describing here is a field of carnage and death and battle. He's saying that land all around Israel is going to be a wasteland throughout the millennial kingdom. Even as Gentile nations come in and worship the Lord, they'll have to pass through those uh, gloomy and those morbid scenes. He describes a field of death and verses 16 and 17 remind us this is a faithful promise. He says, seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. No one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate. For my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it hath gathered them. And he hath cast the lot for them. And his hand hath divided it unto them line by line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation shall they dwell therein. In other words, God says, all these things may seem impossible from where you're sitting, but I promise you they will come to pass. Chapter 35 is a short chapter, and it presents to us our final thought, the wonders to come. I'm glad we don't have to end on death and doom and gloom. I'm glad the description outside of the land of Israel, I'm glad the, the description inside's better than what's on the doorstep there, because he describes how the millennial kingdom is going to be a glorious thing, and he describes three basic truths about the wonders to come. Verses 1 and 2, he describes how the rose will bloom there in that kingdom. He says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. doesn't just extend to creation but it extends to uh, mankind as well as God's highest created being. Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. He talks about how the roses will bloom there. Verses 8 and 9, he describes how the righteous will dwell there. He says, And an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And I like this last thought, verse 10. The ransomed will worship there. It says, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. I'm part of that, amen. And come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I'm glad God knows what He's doing, aren't you? And I'm glad it don't end with doom and gloom. I'm glad He's got a plan, and His plan is perfect.